Hello, everybody, and welcome to Inside Physician Recruiting. My guest today is Christy Bray-Ricks, who is the VP of Provider Talent with Ardent Health. Christy, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jerry. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, you know, I, I know you've obviously have a lot of experience in this industry previously with LifePoint, Banner before that. I see you, you know, in all the trade shows and different panels and, you know, webinars. And how did you get started in this industry? What, what was the entry point for you? Sure. Um, so I've, I've been in the healthcare industry since college. So I started as an athletic trainer at the University of Oklahoma and uh, really thought I, I would probably go on to be a surgeon at some point, but um, ended on the uh, administration or operations side and just through some acquisitions and transactions, my roles changed and, and I landed in the recruiter seat. So um, many years ago and just have grown to have a passion for the industry and really talent acquisition and staffing. And um, I just really, really love what what I do to be able to serve those communities in a in a non you know patient facing way. That's awesome. So tell us a little about your current role with Arden. Sure. So I started with Arden last May and uh, really brought as the organization was transforming and growing uh, to provide more support. Uh, from Ardent to our to our entities um, out in our out in our eight markets. So, bringing together the team where we had recruiters and coordinators, and just really bringing them together as one. Uh, another layer of that that we didn't have was dedicated sourcing staff. So, um, hiring a director to to lead that group, as well as expanding our sourcing toolbox, um, so that we aren't reliant or as reliant on outside contingency or retained firms. Another aspect of my job is managing our temporary staffing. So, so our locums uh, management through through a vendor management platform, but. Um, High utilization, as you can imagine, with 30 hospitals and 200 plus mm -hmm. clinics across the country. So really brought to Ardent to transform as many of the corporate departments were doing or still doing and um, bringing that support, support together for for our communities uh, that we serve. What would you say, knowing the landscape and obviously the different roles you've had, what would you say are the biggest challenges facing in-house recruiters in today's marketplace? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I can't uh, I, I can't go too far without saying just the the lack of supply, right? So the physician shortage, even APP shortage in some of the specialty APPs, um, advanced practice providers. So I think just just not having the supply where you know quite literally they're not coming out of school. So they didn't go into pre-med or med school and residency or, or not even um, at, at this phase. It's not even that they went into specialties that we don't need. It's just a complete lack of folks choosing that as a career. You have to think about, you know, when they come out, they have a high amount of student loan debt. You know, on average, I think it's anywhere from three and four hundred thousand dollars. And and it takes a long time right, to, to become a physician yeah. and, and earn that money back to pay it off. And so there's a lot of things stacked against us into why would you want to do that? Work so hard, go to school for so long, come out with a bunch of debt when, you know, there are other careers, quite honestly, that seem a little easier for folks um, in, in the generation making those decisions now. Um, so I think the supply is 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 our biggest 
thing. We just don't have um, enough uh, enough uh, people on the shelf to go, you know, to go buy at the store. Um, I think uh, the the second thing that that really really worries me, um, and, and it isn't a it isn't an overall bad thing, but it will make my job harder, right? To go find employed physicians and and APPs is really the the tele aspect. So if you think about Amazon with one medical and, and um, you know, even even some of the Oak streets or things like that. So when you look at some of these different practice models and um, residents as they're coming out, they really are looking for some work-life balance, uh, that flexibility in their scheduling. Some of them truly are just looking at telejobs or now they're coming out looking at just a locum's job where they can work, you know, where they want, when, when, where and when they want to, right? So, that's yeah. a huge um, struggle when I look at how we are traditionally staffing our models. You can't, you cannot go to a physician anymore and say, I need you to work eight to five Monday through Friday in a clinic, <laughs> you know, be here, uh, clock in and out. That, that just doesn't, that doesn't work anymore. I don't think that's worked for a long time, but I really worry about just the other staffing models that are evolving so, so quickly that healthcare organizations like mine really have to think about that as we move forward um, because we we won't be an attractive employer over time uh, to retain those folks. Would you say that those most impacted by everything you just described are going to be the smaller hospitals, the rural hospitals that were already struggling? A lot of the tools they had at their disposal previously with, you know, J1s that have seemed to have been more relaxed to allow some bigger cities to participate in that area. I mean, do you think that everybody's going to be heard across the board here if they don't do what could be done? Or is it really going to be the rural hospitals, the smaller hospitals that are most impacted? Yeah, I think the hardest part for the the smaller hospitals really comes down to finance. You know, I think they they're struggling to to make payroll every two weeks in 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 some instances, and so uh, getting the supplies they need, you know, paying their vendors, things like that. Where that that's the part I think is really hard. And and as a physician, um, you know, you need that the guarantee of some of that money uh, if it's there for you over time. So again, the the deck is kind of stacked against them from a location standpoint, and then making sure they have secure financial resources, you know, for that employee and all of their employees. Um, so that that to me it makes it hard. I think you know a key piece. If if I were leading a, a rural hospital or working in that environment, I would really push to have some good telepartners, some telespecialists, where you could really focus within that rural community of serving. With primary care, you know, OB, peds, and and um, you know some surgery stuff, but you've you've got to bring in some type of telepartner to help you with those other things. You know, you're you're probably not going to ever get an ENT. You're probably not going to get a urologist ever again. But could you partner with some of that, even infectious disease things like that? That cardiology, we can do a lot through tele on cardiology and technology. Um, you know, except for running a stent and, and doing a doing a surgery. There's a lot you could do though via video and tele that would I, I just I always worry about just the access to care. If somebody's grandmother 
can't get to what they need to write. And, and we just have to think about the tele. It, it won't always be person to person in the future. Um, and, and just try to utilize those resources along with what you have locally. If it's a medical assistant that's highly trained or a nurse that's operating at the top of their license, those are the types of things I think that are different in rural medicine uh, than, than most cities uh, where you do have to have folks who are operating at the very, very top of their license. Yeah, I, I live north of Atlanta, and I had heard something a couple of years ago that I, I didn't think was possible, but it turns out that it was. The su whole southern half of the state mm -hmm. does not have any OBs, and that's where the telehealth is coming in for them. And they were talking about how the devices and you know the audio and the video and all the tools they have have gotten so much better just in the last couple of years to do like you just described, you know, maybe what it used to be is just, I can look in your ear, but now they can do mm -hmm. so much more. And I, I think they're going to have to, because you're right. I mean, I don't know that many urologists or other tough specialties are going to these small towns, you know, unless they're from there or their, their spouse is from there. And it's only going to get harder as, like you said, at the top, less people are coming out of school. So it is going to be an interesting situation. Yeah, I think OB is one of the most dire. I feel like there's not a way to sugarcoat that. Um, you see OB deserts. I'm from Oklahoma, huge OB deserts in Oklahoma where patients are going two, two and a half hours to get to care. Um, there's a lot that can go wrong with a mom and their baby during that time. And so it's, it is very, very scary. Um, you know, I don't know, is it, is it a lot more midwives, higher trained, you know, getting, I, I don't know what, what it is, but in, I do understand, yeah, Georgia is a lot like Oklahoma where you just get, if you get out of those big cities and a, far enough away from, you know, maybe Atlanta or Columbus or some of those places, um, there's not a lot out in those rural areas. You know, I wonder if what this does over the coming years is create a population shift back to the big cities. You know, we were there at one point and then everybody sort of spread out. As you have less and less resources available in those areas, I have to think at some point people say, you know, I, I can't live and grow a family in a place where I don't have adequate access to care and I don't want to have to drive three, four hours to do that. And I wonder if people start shifting back towards the big cities. I think potentially, um, I know I see that in my own family where they've made decisions to live, you know, away or, or more in the country. Um, it, I, it's a risk, right? It's probably a risk factor yeah. of what you want to take on. You know, what is your health like? Are you planning to have children? Those types of things. And I mean, you do know, I mean, because the people planning to have children are actually having children. I mean, we've just seen that continue to decline over the years. I think it's a, a function of cost of raising children in this country, child care and all those things. But also, right, could that be attributed to, you know, wait, I live somewhere where I may not have access to something. Um, yeah, I, that's an interesting, interesting point about if we see some of that kind of that surge that went out, come back in. Uh, it's hard to say, especially with so many jobs now being remote, that you know, that, that yeah. was the big thing in COVID. Everybody left and they could be remote. Um, I'm not sure if we'll see them bounce back. Probably depends on real estate market, in all honesty. Yeah, exactly. So looking at other things that are sort of impacting the space, obviously, just in the last couple of years, you've got, you know, you mentioned the Amazon, CVS, uh, Walmart, Dollar General. 
how are, are these, you know, sort of big box locations stepping into the space, making it even harder for hospitals to compete for talent? You know, I think from the primary care space, that's that's really where they're coming in. Um, if you think about Optum employing 62,000 primary care physicians, that's just in a, it's a mind boggling number and what they're predicted mm-hmm. to grow over the next few years. Um, and I have recruiter friends there, so they, they are my friends. It's, it's just really hard. Um, I, I, and I have worked in a direct, uh, a direct care model before recruiting for them. And, um, it's an easier sell. It really is on many, many cases. And so again, it's, it's rethinking the traditional physician employed model to provide some of that um, and truly to have the physician or or the advanced practice provider be a care team member. Um, Stop focusing on medicine, but on health, like helping them get healthier. And that's where you make the the huge strides. If you're lowering their A1Cs and their blood pressure and their cholesterol, um, it is smaller patient panels. And nobody, especially my employer, nobody wants to hear about smaller patient panels. But it is more focused, care-driven. Um, I think the the increase to access. I'm not sad about Amazon and Walmart getting into that. If we, I'm all for increased access, time and time again. And then you figure out what does the care look like? Is it just medicine and prescriptions and that, or are we really trying to to heal the patient? Um, I'm on the healing aspect. I think we do too much of the other side, uh, and that's where we get bogged down. Um, you know, with, with the care model that as it is today. So I had a physician on recently and he was speaking to exactly that. The idea that maybe one of the ways this shortage gets solved is that the younger generation, you know, more fully aware of all of the problems caused by so many of the things with diet and health and exercise that if, if they're, if they can take care of themselves better, which it seems in some ways they're doing, then by default, you're not going to have as much of a need for care. So maybe that's one impact that could sort of lessen that staffing shortage that we're sort of seeing across Mm -hmm. the board. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, you do see, uh, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know how old you are, but at least for me, right. I grew up with a lot of people still smoking cigarettes um, a a lot and, and probably still even pregnant mothers smoking cigarettes and drinking alcohol back when, (laughs) right. So I think, um, as as we've learned and you know studies have come out or the research or you know just you know bad case examples of these are things you don't do i do feel like we're getting um better as a society with some of that but i live in the south you live in the south we see some different behavior patterns right that that um just not not good choices over time in terms of food or other things like that and i think people you know are usually there's there's societal pressure about doing that i i primarily eat vegan is that popular in the south absolutely not asking somebody to take off the cheese and things like that but i do it purely for my personal health reasons um i had an elevated a1c i had all of these you know pre-type 2 diabetic indicators i took that into my own hands and I, I don't think yeah. that many Americans, you know, they may see it or they might see their mom or their grandmother or something go through some similar health crisis. And guess what? It's in their DNA, too. Do they stop and say, don't do that? Not usually. I think that, you know, because there's a pill, right, that can fix it for you. Um, they, they, they would rather take that easier route than change some of yeah. what they're doing uh, intrinsically. 
Well, that's another interesting point you just brought up about, you know, it being in your genetics, because I think as these genetic and DNA testings get better and better, I think the next generation is going to know when they're 15 years old, everything they're predisposed to, you know, what age they could potentially get something. And I think it's going to scare them to do some of the things that, you know, maybe preceding generations just put off until they got a personal scare Mm -hmm. themselves. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. And I think, um, you know, we, we've talked about, you know, technology and some of the different improvements. And I, and I do think that is something that's really great. If you think about, um, you know, for breast cancer and, and the genetic testing uh, now, I know I have two cousins who've gone through that and it is, it's, it's, it's just, it creates an awareness, like just be aware this is in you. Um, And, and I do think that that will be super helpful as those things get better and tweaked um, to, to provide that data to folks. If they if they want to accept it, sometimes Definitely. they don't want it. Sometimes right. they don't believe it or want to accept it. But if the data, you know, if the data is there, uh, make a decision. You know, kind of a thing. Exactly. So I, I did a poll on Locum Smart recently, and I, I asked sort of, what do you think the biggest you know challenges are? Where are they coming from for hospitals? And overwhelmingly, the vote was for this idea that so many providers are really migrating towards mm-hmm. the Locum lifestyle, which you alluded to earlier, you know, it's, it's a higher pay rate. It's more flexibility. It's the ability to travel on top of that. You've got, you know, every year, it seems like there's more and more staffing companies out there. Do you think that that combination of more doctors wanting locums and more locums companies with more opportunities, what impact does that have on an in-house recruiter who essentially is competing against them for that same talent pool with, less resources and lower pay rates. It does create a very competitive environment for us. And I think, you know, when I first started in this industry, physicians would need to have, you know, three, five plus years experience to do locums. Maybe it was even a retirement plan or a slowdown plan for some folks. And, but now you are seeing, um, you're seeing them straight, you know, straight out of school and going into that um, you know, as long as they're comfortable, I think that, you know, I would be a little bit worried about quality and, and having enough case volume, right? Especially as they're, they need to get their board certification done in that time frame. Um, but it is, it is a very, very attractive employment model. It's, it's not too different than what a lot of us do. You know, the first thing when I have new positions that I'm recruiting for, they say is, is it remote? Is it hybrid? You know, they ask about the schedule. And so locums, gives physicians that opportunity or providers to to really guide their own ship and decide what they want to do. Um, so I, you know, it, I think it, it is very, it is very, very challenging. And again, I think that's why we've got to come up with some other flexible scheduling options, um, you know, especially for physicians as, as the talent pool just shrinks uh, very, very, very quickly over the next, you know, 10, yeah. 20 years. So with all the things we've already talked about with, you know, all these pressures of supply and demand and outside, you know, forces sort of making it more difficult for hospitals to compete. One thing that I see, and, you know, it's a limited scope, so I'd be curious to your perspective, but it seems to me like if you look at in-house recruiting organizations for hospitals, you essentially have half where they understand the importance of long-term strategic planning and they're putting things in place to create marketing and you know lead gen funnels across all specialties to just have a consistent flow of mm-hmm. candidates. 
The other half seems either because of lack of resources or time, just reacting to the hottest needs at the moment and really are never able to sort of build anything consistently to generate candidates. Do you think that's accurate? Yeah. And if so, what, what what do you think can be done to help combat? Yeah, that? I think um, <clears throat> I'm not a good reactive person. I, <laughs> I'm a planner. <clears throat> I like to know, you know, or, or at least have some type of uh, map in front of me to, to, to go down and plan for. I think what happens with definitely with internal teams, you know, lack of resources. I'm blessed to have sourcers. I've had sourcers since I was at Banner, you know, so having folks who that is their sole focus, you know, post the job, find the candidates versus a lot of in-house folks are still doing full cycle recruitment. So it's post the job, keep that fresh, email candidates, text candidates, do a site visit. You know, there's a there's like 20 things that have to get done in a day. Yeah. And so so they end up being very reactive to whatever that critical thing is that popped up. You know, what's the fire of the day? Who just resigned? Those types of things. Um, so for me, I've been blessed to have a little bit more bandwidth from a team perspective with those folks focused on sourcing. Um, <clears throat> you know, it takes a good 90 days to build a sourcing campaign. I would even argue it's 180 if you get, you know, just getting it out there and getting it sourced in an appropriate way. Um, so that's half a year, right? So if you are consistently just in a reactive phase um, and, 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 and maybe you are partnering with a contingency firm or a retained firm, it also takes them that amount of time to build a campaign. Yeah. Uh, you know, you kind of spread the news, even though it's in a internet environment, it, it just takes a while to reach people. It has to be the right job at the right time for the right person to say, yes, I want to talk to you today. So, so my challenge a lot within organizations is give me some run room. Um, you know, we know, I mean, at least I've seen this, Jerry, over my career, candidates and new residents and fellows are signing earlier and earlier in the process. We even have some medical students, soon as they match for their residency, they're signing and getting on a stipend agreement. So that takes another piece of our funnel funnel away. Wow. You know, I, totally, I would totally, if, if my child said that's what, the, I would say, go do that because you're getting paid. You don't have to look for a job. It's an organization that you already trust. And, you know, you're just guaranteed, yeah. right? They don't ever have to talk to a recruiter during their three and four years of residency. Um, so we're seeing people sign earlier and earlier. Uh, you know, at this point, I tell my team, all the all the all the 2023s are gone, right? The people signing now are 2024s, even fives. Um, so we have to be thinking ahead as an organization. What will we need? We do have history to show us like, OK, this is where we had attrition and this is what our you know, we look at our succession planning from our current our current group of providers and figure out the holes we need to fill in the coming years. But you do have to be very strategic about it. I, I don't know very many people who are successful posting a job and hiring, especially an experienced person within the exact same calendar year. Uh, I think the AAPPR data on time to fill would you know, show that it's a long stretch. You got to give yourself some runway on that. Yeah. You know, a thought I always had, and again, it's easy to have a thought like this when you haven't actually worked as an in-house recruiter, but I would think if an in-house recruiter went to the C-suite and made the argument that, you know, this isn't a cost center, you know, what I'm doing ultimately is a revenue generating portal. 
you know, the providers we bring in, bring in a ton of revenue. And it's almost like you could make a case on paper showing like a, an ROI of, you know, the dollars that, you know, for X amount of additional dollars in our department to allow us to get these tools, we feel we can convert that into Y number of new providers that would translate into this much revenue. Do you think that happens or maybe it's, it's happening and that this seems to be shooting it down because the money isn't there? Or is that just something that, again, everybody's so busy dealing with all the fires and the orders it's just not something they even have time to put together. I think it, it depends on the organization. I think some organizations do this really well and, and definitely recognize the value of uh, the investment in the recruitment team. Uh, that's what brought me to Ardent, really, uh, to, to, to do that work. Um, it's, it is very easy to show, if you're showing your days open and their physician, you know, the missing physician calculator, right? So a days open on a general surgery job equates to X. Uh, and sometimes, right, maybe the offer you gave the last guy, if you would have just bumped it five or $10,000, they would have signed. <laughs> but now you have a gap and it's been open 48 more days. If you put those dollars to it, and I, and I do plan to do that, I'm building my applicant tracking system with ISIMS, and that's an overlay that, that's very easy. You can come up with those calculations to just say, this is you know, this is the number of jobs we have open in these specialties equating to X loss revenue. Um, you know, I do think recruitment teams have always been an expense category and it, it's just false. Uh, we, we, we bring the folks in, all talent acquisition, we bring the folks in that get us to a revenue generating standpoint. I think another piece, you mentioned Locum Smart earlier, and that is the, the VMS that we work with. Um, we use their payer enrollment team to really, really have locums be a, a revenue generating department for us. Um, and that's, it's proven itself way, way more um, valuable than, than what we had predicted when, when, Ardent, um, when Ardent went down the path with Locum Smart doing our payer enrollment. So um, all of it can be and should be revenue generating. It's just um, a way to come up with how to show that on paper. There are tools out there to do that. and. Um, and hopefully, uh, you know, over time, especially if you look at if you're always just outsourcing to an agency, a contingency firm or retained firm, um, the cost on that is is just crazy uh, compared to taking that investment and building your in-house team fraction of the cost compared to what. And, and then yeah. you're controlling the fit and the quality of your candidates. Um, no offense, we partner with some we partner with a lot of contingency agencies, but I'm always going to, you know, my my bet is on my internal team doing a better job. So sure, you know it's funny on the on the locum side you you mentioned there. I always knew that a certain percentage of locums wasn't built for correctly, but I, I spoke with somebody probably about a year ago. Their entire business is going into organizations and basically sort of fixing mm -hmm. that piece. And she said that the average hospital has well over a million and a half dollars of revenue that they're not capturing every year because they're not properly billing for locum. Yeah, the numbers I've heard um, really coming from, from Locum Smart and our folks there, um, I mean, it, it is well into the billions that doesn't get, uh, that isn't collected. Because, yeah. you know, we're, we're required by law to drop a bill. It's what happens after that. You know, it's a write-off, um, you know, but what, what my biggest thing, why payer enrollment matters with locums and temporary staffing is, because the patient ultimately gets some type of bill and it's out of network, it's 
a thousand times more expensive. You know, it's all of these things that as a patient, right. again, I think about my grandmother, she gets that bill and she's like, I just went for, you know, for a stomach ache and now it's $10,000. <laughs> like what happened? Yeah. Um, and so we owe it as healthcare organizations to make sure the right, you know, the right boxes are checked. I get it. It's hard work. Payer enrollment is really, really tough. But we do owe it to them because the, just the one time, if you hit an ED on an out-of-network you know, charge and, and, and have to have something happen, and oh, by the way, then it's a locum provider that did those services, uh, your, your mind would be blown and you would really, really not understand why didn't the hospital take the time to do that um, knowing you know, I was going to get a bill on those services. Right. So you're obviously extremely well-versed in a lot of different areas of this, you know, healthcare recruitment, staffing industry. Where do you go for, you know, in terms of a resource, uh, and I know trade shows and things like that, but any organizations or uh, websites, publications, anything like that that you could recommend to the audience to kind of get a better pulse on what's sort of going yeah, on out there? Um, I mean, APPR is, and, and formerly ASPR, but APPR is is my go-to for, for industry knowledge and networking. Um, I, I truly say I wouldn't be where I am today without those connections and the education provided by that organization. Uh, recently become a little bit more involved with Napper and Nalto as as I do um, oh. as I do the temporary staffing work. But I think um, you know just finding uh, um, you know if, if you're in the HR space, Sherm. I, I know plenty of people that are involved with Sherm and and really really like the the content that they provide on a professional development level. Um, I think most states have, if it's ACHE or some other, um, you know, state or regional group for recruitment or other, you know, executive healthcare type roles. Um, for me, I'm just always about learning and reading and, and um, you know, kind of digging into, if you saw the stack of books that I have, you know, on my bedside table, to read, um, you, would, you would wonder what I do with my time. But I, you know, I just, I read a lot. So I try to to follow those folks and then listening to podcasts like yours, you know, find, find ones that speak to you. You know, it's good to listen to a good crime prop podcast, but, you know, maybe throw like a leadership yeah. one or listen to Brene Brown or somebody, you know, Simon Sinek, listen to somebody in between there. Um, Cause I do think the more that you're learning you, the more that you grow. Um, so that would be my advice. Definitely. So if you look into your crystal ball, 10 years from now, obviously, you know, everything we've talked about today is about change. We've got AI and machine learning and technology and all this coming into the space on top of everything else we've talked about. If you had to venture a guess, what 10 years from now is the role of a physician recruiter going to look like? And how, how do you think it's going to be different than where we are now? Oh, well, I think... I think what we're hiring for will will look different um, from a tele aspect of it. You know, it's a tele physician or a tele component that we're hiring to staff. Um, you know, I think unfortunately, the, with the way medical schools and residencies are set up and fellowships in this country, uh, I don't know if we'll see a lot of movement to improve that, to improve access and reduce cost, and, and try and get more folks into that. Um, 10 years doesn't seem like long enough for this country to do some of that work that's needed to be done for the last yeah. 30 years. Um, but I think that, 
you know, it just, it is just going to get harder. Um, and, and we have to just be able to think differently about how we utilize the resources, uh, that we, that we have and, and put them in the best place to provide the care for, for the community. Gotcha. So last question, and this could be completely unrelated to staffing, but what is something you would recommend to the audience and why? Mm. You know, I think uh, my biggest recommendation and my, my teams that, that I've led uh, both at LifePoint and Arden know this is really invest in yourself. Um, take the time to to look either professionally or finding some something that, that you know, fills your heart outside of work. I'm so passionate about my work. I would work you know, 24 seven, if, if I could, uh, my family needs me <laughs> some of the time, but I think exactly. really just find something that ignites your passion. If it is work, you know, then, then dig in and, and make those networks, build those networks and make those connections through APPR, other organizations. Um, if, you know, if you have the other hobbies, uh, you know, just, just take the time to really, you know, care for yourself. Uh, if it's intellectually or spiritually, um, take care of your body, all those types of things. Um, but I think as I've, as I've aged, I've realized how important it is to really take care of yourself. Um, cause we, we just get one shot at this and you want to make the best of it. Yeah. That's fantastic advice. Well, Chrissy, it's been an honor to have you on. I've thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. Um, love to maybe have you on an, another point as you know, some new topics come out there. To you guys out there, thanks for listening. I, I hope you learned as much from this conversation as I have. Uh, remember to check out the blog as well, Inside Position Recruiting. And if you have any suggestions for topics, if you have interest or want to you know, recommend somebody as a guest, I'd love to hear that as well. Um, but again, Christy, thanks again for coming on. And uh, until time, it was uh, a pleasure. Thank you.